Today's scripture is Acts 14, verses 21 through 28. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Elystria, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamplia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From Attilia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. All right. How's everybody doing? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Good. Whoa. 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 Hold on a second. <laughs> All right, we don't need more broken stuff. Okay, um, we've got enough of that. Uh, so this is our passage tonight. I'm trying to think if I have anything. I don't think I have any housekeeping to do beforehand. I don't think I do. I'm scanning the brain. I don't remember anything. So this is our passage. This is the end of, of uh, chapter 14, Acts chapter 14, and um, I believe session f- 48 in the book of Acts. So I'm glad you could be along for the journey. Um, it's been about a year now. And the world has changed, and here we are. Um, and so today, um, the first thing I kind of want to bring us to is sort of, this is a moment of closure, this particular passage. This is a moment of closure because we have come to the end of the first missionary journey, not just of Paul and Barnabas, but literally the first ever missionary journey, like in all of, I would say, history. I mean, um, like I've said before, nobody in the ancient world was doing this. Nobody was traveling around trying to like proclaim the greatness of their God so that people would convert to their religion. Um, this is a specifically sort of Christian idea that, that is incredibly ancient uh, with the second century. So, um, I'm sorry, with, with 2,000 years ago. So we have come to the very end of the, of the first missionary journey. These, these missionaries have traveled 1,200 miles on this one journey. Um, and so for the first time, they come to the end of, of this journey, and it says that they, at the very end, it says they traveled to Antioch, and this is the verse that it says after that. It says, upon arriving there, they gathered the church together, and they reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Okay. Um, God has done something, not only new with missionary work, God has done something brand new with the Jewish people. Uh, he has, for the very first time, people don't realize the significance of this. This is the first time that God has, has allowed the existence of his people without any Jewish people in their presence. So at this point in the passage, there are several churches now in these cities that they have gone to. And there are now freestanding churches that do not have a Jewish presence. And this has never happened. This is brand new. Um, every movement of God has been centered on his people, the Jewish people, Israel, and for the first time, God has done something different. And Paul says, um, he says here, like, like Luke writes that they went to Antioch, they met with the people there, and he says specifically, he tells about how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I want to focus on that passage, the door of faith. This is a passage that Paul will regularly talk about. Paul will constantly, throughout the rest of his writings, be talking about this door of faith. Um, here's just a, um, a, the open door, a few of the passages that talk about the open door. When he talks about the open door, this is 
a conversation that goes back a long ways. Um, it's not new. It doesn't start here in this passage. You have to remember, when you're reading the New Testament, you're jumping into a story that has been going on for a very long time, and there are phrases that are thrown in, there are words that are used that already have meaning for, for the people, for the audience there, that may not have meaning to you unless you have followed their journey and understand the writings of their prophets. So the idea of the open door, it really starts with Isaiah chapter 60. Um, and Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah writes how foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Your gates will always stand open. Um, there it is, it's, it's the open gate, open door. Uh, we'll get back to that in a minute. They will never be shut day or night so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. So um, there's a lot here, but this goes all the way back to Abraham. When Abraham was called out of his, his people, he said, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a new people. Um, your offspring are going to fill the earth. And eventually your people, you're going to be a people that's going to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And then as you move along in the text, you have people like Elijah and Elisha who talk about how, sure, right now God's story centers upon Israel, but one day God's going to kick the door open for Israel and allow the Gentiles in. And he always, sometimes it's kind of used as a threat, which is like, if you guys don't get back on track, God's going to kick that door open like sooner and, and let somebody else do it, bring the the Gentiles in. And so it's sort of always in the background there, always being talked about. And so Isaiah mentions it here. And then when you fast forward in the scripture, when you go all the way to the end of the text, you get to the book of Revelation. And the second to last page, the very last page of the Bible, Revelation um, 21, it says, it, it paints this picture where this, uh, this, this guy, John, he sees this vision of sort of like what the kingdom of God will be like one day. And he uses the open gate, open door metaphor himself. He says, I, um, he's looking at the city of David at Jerusalem, and he's describing it like this. He says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun nor the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. See, he's He's riffing off of Isaiah, the things that Isaiah talked about. In verse 25, it says, On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there, and the glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. That's Isaiah all over again. So, the Bible, sorry, mic issues, the Bible ends with this door being open. It's open. It's propped open. It has happened. The thing that we were always told was going to happen has happened, and I want you to pry your mind out of American evangelical theology for a minute and realize that the book of Revelation is not even necessarily about the future. It's about the work of Jesus in the world. Uh, it's about the place that God's kingdom has in the world versus all the other nations and kingdoms which are Babylon and how they all will fall, but the kingdom of God will last forever. And it is because of Jesus that this gate is open. Jesus himself, in the book of John, calls himself, I am the door, I am, I am the gate, that is, like, he is, he is basically taking this thing that they described as one day the blessing of God will finally happen in the lives of Israel and Gentiles will be brought in. This door will be open and once it's open, it's never going to be shut again and people that have never been included will now be included. And that is not a future thing. That is now. We are the beneficiaries already of this open door. I am not Jewish. Maybe some of you are. I don't know. But the fact that we are gathering and claiming this text as our own and these people as our own people um, 
is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the door that has been opened and has remained open. The open door to the Gentiles and the open gate into the kingdom are the same thing. And I want to be clear, the message of Revelation is not that one day this will come, it'll come true. It's that it is open right now for all of us. Um, there is no temple in the holy place anymore. There is no temple in Christianity. It is we are the temple as we gather. Um, and that is just as true now as it was when John wrote about it, as when Isaiah wrote about it. Um, there is no temple, no holy place amongst us. Our body is the temple. That is a collective communal gathering. The gates are wide open. The lights are on, always on. And, and the church is now to act like Revelation 21 talks about sort of like this lighthouse in a storm and the world is raging in this storm and the church is here and the doors are open and the lights are on and we are begging people to come in. And so when missionary work is completed, this is what it looks like. This is, this is exactly what it looks like when missionaries complete their work. These were the first missionaries and when a missionary's work is done, when they walk away, there is a people there. If their work is really done, if they've really done it, then there is a people there who are this city with the doors open to anyone who would come in and the light is on drawing them in like a moth to a flame and like guidance in, in the middle of, of a storm in the middle of the ocean like a lighthouse. Like this is what the church is supposed to be. There should be a people. When missionaries walk away and they give you elders like is happening in this passage and they walk away, um, by that point, you should be a people who do not look, think, and act like anyone else in the world. That you are a unique people in this world, ready to follow Jesus on your own. You're gathering to tell the story. Here's stick figure time. I haven't done this in a while. Stick figure time. So you are gathering to tell the story. You gather regularly to tell the story. And throughout the rest of the time, in between the telling of the story, the gathering and the telling, throughout that time, you are now living the story of Christ. Um, his humility, he gave up all of his power and privilege and, and, and honor to, to be born in poverty in a manger. He gave up everything so that he could move towards us. And so we do this. And then and he exercises justice and the healing of people. That's what's happening there. And, and this is oceans and somebody almost drowning. Um, and it's Jesus pulling like mercy, pulling the people up who have fallen down um, by taking their eyes off of Christ, um, by offering sacrifice, living a cruciform life that is pouring itself out and allowing itself to be broken for the world around you, ultimately leading to the restoration of all things that are dead and fallen. And throughout the week, we are telling the story of Christ with our lives. This has been the common theme of the book of Acts over and over and over. Um, and as we live this way, people are drawn in. And, and so what do we do about, like, what's our relationship with the world then? I want to quote some words of, of uh, Bishop Esau Macaulay, an Anglican bishop in the church. He says, the church, um, he's talking about people that are not in the church, like the governments of the world, the leaders of the world. The church is their biggest ally when they do right, and their most relentless critic when they do evil, especially as it relates to the most vulnerable. And that's is what it looks like when a missionary has finished their work and, and there is a group of people who do not look like or act like or live like anybody else. They are not telling the same stories. Most people who live around us are telling the American story. We are telling the story of Jesus. Every single day, awakening and living out in a theatrical performance this story again and again and again. And I know you read stuff like this and you think, well, here's the problem. Um, 
I have walked away in the past from the church, and I have friends and family who have walked away from the church because this is simply not what the church is. I understand that that is frustrating. I understand that, and I understand all kinds of churches today are struggling to actually be the body of Christ, living the life of Christ, and publicly portraying the story of Christ. I understand that. But I believe it's possible. And the reason I believe it's possible is because Jesus did it. And Jesus is the perfect Imago Dei. He is the perfect human that we were created to be. And so we are called to live in this way, uh, in the same way that Jesus did. Jesus was the temple, the place where, forgiveness, where people found forgiveness and healing. Jesus was the light of the world. He, he says this about himself to guide people in that were drawn to him in droves. He was the gate that was always left open. He was always present. He was always living in the world in this way. And that is what we are being called to do. And so when these missionaries walk away from these people, this is what they are leaving. A group of people, a new people in the world that have never existed before in that place. But now they do. And the presence of this new people will become disruptive to the nations of the world because the world doesn't know what to do with a, a small little beachhead of this kingdom in their midst. They don't know what to do with the people who don't play the honor games, who don't play the racial games, who don't play the slavery games, who don't play all of these games that they are playing. The world didn't know what to do with them. Remember, the biggest feature in the book of Acts, as you read the book of Acts, and I hope you're going back as we're doing this, and regularly reading up to where we are and seeing it through new eyes, hopefully. The biggest feature in the book of Acts is that Luke is telling the story of the life of Christ as lived out by the church. And he's paralleling everywhere. There's these little passages all through it. Here's one in, uh, in, in uh, Acts 14, 22, where it says, he, he looks at, they look at each other, he, they look at the new church plants, and they say, we must go through many hardships to enter into the kingdom of God. Why would he say that? Why would he think you have to go through a lot of hardships? Well, what he's doing is he's mirroring Luke 21, 12 through 19, where Jesus lays out all the hardships that he will go through on the cross, being whipped, being punched, having his beard ripped out, like all the suffering that he went through. He's laying it all out for them, and he says, this is the path to salvation, and I'm going to walk it. And now that they see it, they know, well, if I'm going to live the life of Christ, I can expect that this is how it is going to be. Um, and the best way to understand ourselves is as actors in Christ's play. Now, this isn't saying that hardships is a requirement of following Jesus. It's what it's saying is this is a, a natural thing, an expectation, if you are truly walking with Jesus. This should be, just be an expectation that sometimes it's going to be difficult because you don't have the same goals as everyone else in the world. So, the, oh, where are we? Okay, so the, the missionaries, the great missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, they finish their journey, and they travel back from the very end all the way to Antioch through all of the cities that they first came through. And there's a reason why they revisited these cities again. Um, hold on a second. Um, sorry. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas are traveling back through all of these cities, and one detail that Luke gives us is that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in each church that they went to. So they would go, they would gather the Christians that were there, and any new Christians that had people that had become new followers of Jesus, gather them all there, and they were appointing um, elders 
in each of these groups, in each of these churches, in each city, as they went. And it lays out sort of the, the way that they were doing that. Now, each church has received plural elders, not just an elder, not just a pastor, but a group of elders to lead the church together. And this consists of, this is very consistent with a lot of Paul's writing as we move through the epistles, especially the pastoral epistles. What you see is the words that are being used there are talking about like a plurality of elders, not just one person in charge of a gathering of people. Um, this is actually in stark contrast to sort of how we understand, um, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? This stands really in, in, in stark contrast to like how we understand like the gathering of the church today. Because we gather the church today in the American context more like a like a some kind of concert, um, and or like a like a TED talk, and there's a, one person who represents everyone, and this one person leads the entire church, and this is like very much how it is in the experience of leadership in North America. There's far too much expectation that each church has a singular, omnicompetent leader. Um, the assumption is is that often there is just one gifted person who makes all the final decisions on matters because he or she is. Is, has marketable skills or they are gifted in some way, ordained as well. Um, and what happens is that there's this emphasis on the singular leadership and it, and it, plays, it plays into our hyper-individualism in the West, our, our lack of communal mindset that we're looking for the person with the answers and we want to go to that one person who has the answers. And this kind of singular leadership, um, I mean, it has its high points. It creates... Enthusiasm, everyone gets really excited about like one person. It, it creates decisive judgment because if there's only one person, they can make decisions quick and they can move and they can grow and they can change and be nimble and just, and everyone's like, okay, well, what are you asking? Okay, we'll do, do what you say. And it's easy it's, and quick for one person to sort of move a whole bunch of people and it usually ends up in rapid success if the person knows what they're doing and they're good at it. But it's also the main reason that so many churches fall into complete turmoil, that they fall apart. It's the reason a lot of churches fall into idolatry because what happens is the idolatry of the singular pastor becomes the idolatry of the people. So if the pastor is obsessed with power or money, if they want to get close to powerful people, if they want to um, impress, if they have a certain lifestyle that where they like, like fancy things, like that trickles down to everyone. And I want to talk to you about leadership a little bit here because what we see in the Bible as they are picking their leaders bears little resemblance to a lot of what we see uh, today. Leaders, like I said last week, um, obviously election rolling on still, and like I said last week about elections, um, elections don't determine what we become. Elections reveal who we are. That is, that is the... the the most powerful feature of the presidency is that you are a symbol of, of the people. And it's not just that like you were chosen because you look like the people. It's also that like the longer you are in charge, people will become more and more like you. This is true of all leadership everywhere. Um, because here's the fact. What we do as leaders um, let's put it up here. What we do as leaders, what we do in moderation, the followers will do in excess. And so everything that a leader does, this thing, this thing is a wreck. 
Everybody all right? You feeling good? All right, good. You just talk amongst yourselves for a second while I bend this thing into weird ways. Okay, um, let's see if that stays. What leaders do in moderation, if they know, like, let's dabble in a little bit of this, their people will be like, we can do that? Let's go. And they're going to move past that line. So if a leader goes here, the rest of the people are going to go farther. They're going to go here. People become like their leaders. If you are a leader, anyone under you um, will become like you. And I'm not just talking about leaders of big things. If you are a parent, you are a leader of, your, of, of the little people that are in your house. They are looking to you for what they should be like. They will become like you. The way you talk they will talk. The way you dis- discipline, they will discipline. The ways that you look at other people, they see that and they look at other people the exact same way. So all of your flaws that you have will likely be magnified in these little mirrors that are following you around everywhere that you go. They will become like you and possibly worse in all of these traits that you have. Also, all the amazing good traits that you have, they will embrace that as the good, wonderful things that they see in you, and they will attempt to model those things and probably go farther as well. Um, This is a big concept. You will become like those you look to for leadership in any capacity. I mean, I I shouldn't ask this question, but I, I want you to ponder and think about, in the last four years, has our country become more or less, more, more like our president or less like our president? We've become wildly more like our president, and it will happen again. Leaders determine what we will become. They, they do not have a small role. They shape us. Um, each country becomes more like their leader. Each employee becomes more like their CEO. Each parishioner becomes more like their pastor. This is one of the reasons um, I believe in shared leadership, that I emphasize shared leadership. I have learned over the years to more and more lean upon my elders, to trust their judgments, to listen to them when decisions are being made and to take my own sort of desire and opinion out of it um, unless I'm really asked, what do you want? And then I'll lay it out and say, but I don't know that what I want is the right thing that we should do. Um, It helps protect like groups of leadership. It helps protect a group of people from a rogue leader. That's what it does. It's a helpful thing to do. I also firmly believe Um, and I've said this for years, I firmly believe that if women are not present at the table, if the table is not diverse, if everyone looks the same at the table, if everyone looks the same at the table, you're going to make the wrong decision for everyone. You're not possibly capable of making the right decision if everyone is the exact same um, gender and nationality and race. Because there are some people in your care who will see things from the opposite side because they have lived on the opposite side in ways that you never have. And so I believe that if women are not present as well at the decision-making tables, the decisions will will likely be wrong. And yes, I believe that Paul and Barnabas established women elders in the first century and the second century and all the way up into the third century. It is obvious, honestly, that that women were present as elders. Paul even mentions, um, he mentions women elders. He uses the feminine word of presbyterio in his first letter to Timothy in Ephesus. Um, Priscilla seems to have been a leader in the church. She hosted in her own house in Ephesus and later in her house church in Rome. She led one there. Um, She was certainly a prominent uh, 
prominent in, in the Christian communities at Ephesus and in Rome. And Paul also mentions a female apostle named, in Romans 16, and her name is Phoebe, and she was in charge of taking Paul's message, learning to preach it like him and answer questions and go church to church to church. And so there is ample evidence to show that men and women in the early church were equal. Now, um, you were much, elders in the early church were much more likely to be men because of the culture. But it wasn't exclusive in any way. Um, a plurality of voices in the church from different social locations chosen by spiritually mature people and then led by the Spirit, these are the ways of God in the church. Now, we know that some of the ancient churches didn't go very well as well. I mean, you hear about churches sometimes, they're like, well, we really just want to be like the early church. I'm like, which one? Corinth? Because that was a mess. If you read about the city of Corinth and the church there, the reason Paul's writing them these letters um, is because he's kind of letting them have it, okay? They're saying terrible stuff about Paul. They're gossiping about him, um, all kinds of stuff. And he's just laying it down. And so a plurality of leaders in a church doesn't necessarily guarantee that things will go better, but it's, it's much, much safer. Much more sides, looking at different sides of, of, of every single situation and more people to hear from God um, helps you come to a more collective decision about the Spirit of God, what the Spirit of God is doing in your community. Um, also, the way that they're ordaining people as elders and leaders in the church is vastly different than how we do. When people go get ordained today, <clears throat> people ask questions about, I want to know your, um, your doctrinal position on transubstantiation, or uh, I want to hear, like, um, are you creedal? Are you, what do you, like, how do you, like, and they're going to use all these big words, and they're going to try to, like, basically get the education level of the guy and or girl, and, and, they're, and they're just going to ask him questions about, um, about, like, how they think the church should be ordered, all kinds of stuff. But what they're not asking, that I think they should be asking more often than not, is, is maybe tell me about a time that you had to exercise self-control. Tell me about a time when you had to give sacrificially. Tell me about a time when you had to really forgive somebody and confess sins and had to repent and, and, and discipline. Tell me about a time when you faced suffering and then tell me how you responded to that suffering. Tell me... Um, Tell me how you have dealt with temptations for money and fame and influence and power. Tell me about a time you, you, you took a stand all by yourself in a room full of people who disagreed with you and it hurt you and it cost you something. I want to hear about those times. Why are those times important? Because these are all the things that Jesus did. These are the ways that Jesus moved through the world. Um, in other words, we should be asking more questions about Christ-likeness in our leaders. Not necessary. I mean, sure, education is, is wonderful and it's important. And, you know, how someone thinks into theology is important and, and, and it's good. But we start with Christ-likeness. If a leader is not Christ-like, they should not be a leader at all over any of us. If we can't look at them and say they are at least moving towards Christ-likeness, they're disqualified from leadership. If you can't actively see the fruits of the Spirit in their life, they don't belong leading other people who are just going to become more and more like them and farther, farther away from Christ. And so how Paul and Barnabas chose their leaders, verse 23, um, it constitutes sort of the, the first instance of, of the church exercising 
um, sort of the, the establishment of elders, and there is something present with them. It says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them uh, in each church, and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So after they had fasted and prayed, only then did they really learn to pick their elders in the church. Um, and the question that arises that we should always be asking questions when we read the text, why why did they fast and pray? What role does fasting play in this, in this procedure of picking elders of the church? What, what role does the praying and the fasting play? Why these specific things? Why are they joined together every time you read in the book of Acts especially that, that they're picking new leaders? Um, because again, we are telling the story of Christ as a church. And as you look at Christ, when Christ begins his ministry, what is the first thing that Jesus does when he begins his ministry? He is baptized, and, and he hears the voice of God calling, this is my son. I think that is the moment that Jesus realized what his mission was. Remember, Jesus was fully human being. He had to grow. He had to learn. He had to change. Jesus himself had to be spiritually formed. We don't we don't often think about this, that Jesus was spiritual, that Jesus, Jesus experienced a spiritual formation. Um, in the same way that, that we are spiritually formed, Jesus was, as a full human being. Um, and what we see is, he is baptized, he hears the calling from God into his work that he is called to do, and then it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, it goes on to talk about the temptation that he underwent. So Jesus, at the start of his ministry, he fasts and he prays for 40 days so that he can be tempted in all of the things that bring down leaders, power, wealth, fandom, the ability to stand and on, on the edge of something and jump off and be caught by the angels, like just the idea of, of putting on a show, of, of the gathering of the crowds, wooing and awing over you. And Jesus is tempted in all of these things. Why was Jesus tempted for 40 days in these things? Because these are all the things that brought down God's people, Israel, over and over and over. These things are the reason they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus replays that, and everywhere that they failed, he succeeds because Jesus is a better Israel. He's a better temple. He's a better human. He's a better King David. He's a better Moses. He's a better version of everything that we look to and say, wow, I want to be like that. No, no, no. You want to be like Christ. And so if we're going to pick leaders in the church, we're going to fast, and we're going to pray, and we are going to make sure that we have done the due diligence to see whether or not this person has done the work, the spiritual formation, to conquer temptations for power and riches and fame. And if we see an inkling of those things in there, this person is not a leader not in God's people. And this is how they establish this. And I love it. I think it's brilliant. They always realize 
that when they get to their next phase, like what are we gonna do now? Oh, we're gonna establish some leaders. Why? Because, because there was, remember, like there was 12 of us and there was Jesus. And we, we were like the gathering of the tabernacle with the 12 tribes. And so we are here to represent the temple. And so if they, if they, if these people, that, this church that we had planted, if they are going to be a church, like if they're gonna be a temple, they're going to need a Christ figure in their midst to help them learn to be the presence of Christ, to teach them and to lead them. They're gonna need elders. And so how are we gonna pick these elders? Well, how was Jesus entering into his ministry? What did Jesus do in his life? Every step of the way, they replay the story of Jesus and they just play it out again, wherever they are. This is like the simplest guide to Christian living at any given moment. In what way, like what I'm going through right now, in what way did Jesus go through this? And if I don't know what to do, even if I do know what to do, if it doesn't align with the life of Jesus, if it doesn't tell the story of Christ in my context, then I don't do it. I don't do it. And so these people, as they're fasting and they're praying, they are, they are faced like Jesus. They pray and they are facing all of the things that could sideline their ministry. And they're dealing with their demons, their temptations, their 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 temptations to feed the urges of their flesh. That's what fasting does. It, it helps you conquer these things. It's an exercise. It's a spiritual exercise, a discipline that forms you, that forms your, your spiritual strength to stand up against these things and say, I don't need what you think we need to live. I don't need that. And they do all this before they ever take the position of leadership. And it is these constant spiritual disciplines that the church is practicing, these spiritual disciplines that form them as the people of Christ and the body of Christ. And so as we begin sort of this new phase, as we're now we're in phase two, moving towards phase three, as we begin to like move back into like reforming our church and who we are, I almost feel sometimes like we're like replanting this thing. And I feel like all of the ways that things had gotten stale before we will gather and we will crush and we will throw out. And all of the ways that we did not live up to, to living out the theatrical performance of the story of Christ in this world, those are the things that we are going to pick up and we are going to practice. And I think at the center of this whole thing needs to be the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines. Because in order to sustain a community that is witnessing to the truth, you have to have practices, things that we are all doing together regularly and we are aware that I'm not doing this thing alone and it is hard but I am not alone there are 500 other people spread around this city that are of one mind with me that are doing this at this very moment with me and so as it forms you as an individual it is also forming the body it is forming the leadership it is forming all of us into sort of the presence and the life of Christ in the midst of the world these are embodied things that we do in order to remain in the story of God like, like witnessing and, and forgiving and loving our enemies and being generous and sacraments and, and these disciplines keep us formed. And so as we sort of rebuild this community again from our sort of long, dark winter that we have sort of been in here, I want us to collectively discern together with the guidance of the Spirit of God what the practices are going to be that anchor us together in community and in the story of Jesus. 
what should the seasons of our life, what should they look like? The seasons of our week, of our day? How can we become a people that people look at us and they say, well, you guys are different. You're in the midst of the city, but you don't, you don't seem to have been formed by the city. You seem to have been formed by something else. Yes, that's what we want. And so I'm gonna be gathering with the elders and hearing from them. I wanna hear from the house churches. And I want us all to collectively sort of find ways to disciple ourselves in our spiritual formation collectively together, shall we? And so that is my hope, um, that these individuals, pract- individual practices that we do would become these communal things. Um, I'm gonna close this up in a word of prayer. And uh, we're not doing sort of the comeback song anymore as we did at the end. I'm trying to limit the amount of like communal singing we're actually doing for now in this space until things settle down, until the uh, sort of infection counts begin to drop. Um, and we're not taking communion yet either because it's a little inclusive that not everyone can come. And, and, uh, and so we're gonna put some of these things aside for now and we're gonna focus on things like the collect prayer. And so I'm gonna close right now in prayer and I wanna invite you guys to stand and join me and then after this we'll do the collect prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Thank you for everyone that you've gathered here tonight. I pray that you would begin to help us to fashion our minds um, upon the things of you. I pray that you would help us um, to see where you are leading us. Go before us every step of the way. Let us see your footsteps. Let us follow them. Let us also realize that you are behind us. Um, like Paul and Barnabas who traveled on these roads, that you are behind us also doing your work. Every life we pass through, that you are there present in that person doing your work and and just by them coming into our presence, I pray that they would get a little glimpse of you. I pray that you would make us a holy people, that we would stand out, that we would be a people who, uh, whose only desire is to tell the story of Christ day in and day out until we come back together weekly to proclaim the story again. And let us hear the story and be encouraged once again to live it out. May this feed our life. May this feed our direction. May this feed every part of it. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. So if you'd stand with me and do this collect prayer, and I want to do these nice and loud. You ready? Here we go. God, who makes all things new, renew our hearts and minds. Bring us to unity in the spirit and in faith through your resurrection. May we become a people who attains the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, bringing your kingdom to earth. Amen. Thank you all for gathering with us this evening. Grace and peace. Love you all. Glad to see you again.